0: to the Arab Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest, and my guest is Michael Stevens, a senior fellow at the Foreign Policy Research Institute and an associate fellow at RUSI. His work focuses on the politics and security of the Middle East and UK security policy. He's co-authored What Next for Britain in the Middle East, which has just been published by I.B. Torres. Today, we look at the abrupt end of the Gulf feud a little over a week ago, when the UAE, Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, and Egypt dropped the blockade against Qatar. They had launched back in June 2017. Mike, welcome back to the podcast.
1: Thanks so much for having me both. Great to be here again.
0: Now, not so many months ago, we had this conversation about the feud. And I think we both thought that it would get resolved, but eventually... uh, I want to ask you about that—the speed at which it was resolved. But first of all, for our listeners, just give us a kind of a brief overview of of the feud, the history of it, uh, when it began, and uh, which was back in June 2017, and the kind of the big players behind that.
1: Sure. So, I mean, this is a problem which has been rumbling in the background for the best part of ten years, really, um, and we are ten years out from the initial. Uh, uprisings which were known the, as the Arab Spring. And let's be honest, there were three countries in the Gulf in particular, Saudi Arabia, the UAE and Qatar, who became very, very invested in the outcome of those uprisings and tried in their different ways to influence them or to prevent them. In the case of Saudi Arabia, which was very unhappy about the regional order shifting so quickly and, and the signs that the US was not preserving allies like Hosni Mubarak and uh, Zina Medina Lali. Um, and Qatar, who was the opposite, who with their television station Al Jazeera was in the thick of the protests, almost encouraging them, you could say. And I think what emerged was a difference of approach. Qatar felt that the best way to protect itself from the Arab Spring was effectively to get a surfboard, ride on the wave and try and steer it, which was broadly unsuccessful. And the uh, Saudis and the Emiratis took the other approach, which is to stop the wave, build a wall, uh, which was also sort of moderately unsuccessful, you would say. And, And that, I think, has been the driving core between everything which has gone on Since 2014, when ambassadors were pulled out of Doha by Bahrain, UAE and Saudi Arabia, to then the big break in uh, the summer of 2017, where there was a total cessation of relations, a blockade effectively by air, land and sea against Qatar, uh, and accusations that Qatar was funding terrorism and was destabilising the region, and had a television station which was extremely nasty and said all these horrid things about its neighbours. To my mind, I think that this dispute was always going to happen from the moment that the Arab Spring took place, simply because you had three countries which were secure at home, more or less. They had a lot of disposable income and they felt because of their rulers, uh, that they should have some say in the direction of regional affairs. And that was amplified by two things. One was the position of the United States, which did not take a leadership role in the region in the way that it had under, say, the Bush 2 administration or or Bill Clinton's administration. And also the encroachment of Iran into the political space in the Arab world, which made them all feel a little bit jumpy. Um, And that was sort of matched on the other side by the encroachment into the Arab world of political Islam, which, which rose up um, as some of these dictators lost power. And I think that ultimately these countries were always going to find that absent problems at home, they were going to look at problems abroad and, and either try and steer those or stop those. And I think that's what led to the divisions and what led to really what has become a very, very difficult problem to solve because when you've got countries that look at the world from almost identically opposite angles, then there's very little room for compromise.
0: Yes. And as you say, in 2014, that was resolved uh, by the intervention of the uh, Kuwaiti emir, but that was just kind of papering over over the cracks. And then you have that really brutal and abrupt uh, split in 2017, but and, and it was nasty for so many years almost up to the present day. it You know, I was surprised, Mike, at how quickly it was resolved. Did, did it catch you a bit by surprise as well?
1: Yes, it did. Um, I think that it, it's interesting. You need to break apart this sort of concept of resolved, because I think that politically it has been resolved. Uh, and I think that's a good thing. I, I don't think anybody that looks at the gulf objectively, should want it to be divided amongst itself. There is very, in my view, little space for countries which frankly rely on each other for their economic well-being and have historically always been interlinked. To be blockading each other and pretending like Qatar is some sort of type of Albania, you know, which is this kind of, you know, locked box that nobody ever enters. I mean, it makes no sense whatsoever. You know, when I when I lived in the Gulf, uh, I would travel between uh, Qatar and the UAE almost every week. It was a very normal thing for people to do, both expatriates and uh, locals you know that there is a very natural symbiosis there between these countries Um, so it was always an unnatural state of affairs to have put the gulf into this position and it was always going to return it at some point in time um, to that position but after the way in which this was handled and how deep the feud has become I was surprised at how quickly it was solved Um, I think there are reasons for that to do with um, the position of the United States and the Trump administration wanting some quick wins. I think the Saudis were concerned about the incoming Biden administration, uh, knowing that basically Obama three did not support this idea of a blockade and saw it as a sort of silly distraction to the big question of the day, which is Iran and its nuclear program.
0: Mike, uh, you said Obama three?
1: Yeah. I mean, let's be honest, the the Biden administration is filled with people that were there in the Obama administration. So um, it's basically rearranging some deck chairs in that Tony Blinken is Secretary of State when he was Deputy Secretary of State. But people like Brett McGurk are back, you know, uh, all the old guard that you know, uh, with the exception of, of Ben Rhodes, really, who I think is probably because of his overactive Twitter account, um, not put himself in a position for a An administration job but you know effectively that is what this is and even if it is not that is how it is perceived in the region it is perceived in the region as being obama three the saudis don't need anybody to tell them that obama was not the best for their national interests and they didn't agree with the obama approach but nevertheless you now have four years coming up of a return if you like to the way in which things were done in 2015 and 2016 Trump and Kushner are gone and, you know, after last week's events may may not come back. So the Saudis have had to make these recalculations about how to be seen as a constructive ally, how to be seen to be fixing regional problems rather than creating regional problems. I think Mohammed bin Salman has understood that. The question for me is not so much that the Saudis wanted a quick reconciliation. We know last year, exactly one year ago, they tried to reconcile with Qatar, but the UAE blocked it. The question is, why did the UAE turn 180? Uh, And that I simply don't know, and I'm left guessing and have been wondering why it was that the UAE, exactly 12 months after it obstructed reconciliation, became part of the uh, reconciliation process, opened up its borders, opened up air travel, um, coronavirus accepted, and has become, you know, basically to all intents and purposes, normalised with Qatar. I, I, that is something that I think is, is very interesting indeed. Again, I suspect, although I don't know, that the UAE would want to be favouring, uh, carrying favour with uh, the incoming Biden administration uh, and have a good relationship um, with the US. There is another angle I think that's worth exploring, which is that I think that the Saudis this time decided that this is what they were going to do. And MBS had set his stall out to fix this problem with Qatar. And I think at some point in the road, the Saudis simply told the Emiratis, listen, we're doing this. Are you in or are you out? And I think the UAE has made that calculation. I don't know if it's related to other questions about normalisation with Israel or the Emiratis potentially getting F-35. I think that's all speculation. But I think if you look at the dynamic between Saudi and the UAE, I think the Saudis have decided to go ahead with this, with some Kuwaiti support, and you alluded to that, uh, and the UAE has had to follow along. So it's been very interesting, very sudden, but it, it will take some time for the scars to heal.
0: Yeah, and as you say, a lot of loose ends still to be tied up. And it is very interesting uh, with the UAE. And I'm just wondering how Mohammed bin Zayed is is likely to be feeling about the deal. Because as you say, uh, 12 months ago, he was the blocker. Um And there's also that interesting situation with the Qataris and Turkey. And of course, we look at Libya, who's backing Haftar? It's the United Arab Emirates. And uh, who's backing the government in Tripoli? It's Turkey. And Turkey had Qatar's back in the feud. So can we expect to see Qatar returning the favour in Libya?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the Qataris have already signalled that they are behind the GNA. Um, uh, about three months ago, the Turks and the Qataris sent a military delegation with with their two defence ministers to Tripoli uh, to publicly back the government there. Um, I mean, I think on the Libya question, let's be honest, Khalifa Haftar has proven to be an abject failure. The offensive stalled dramatically. The Turks brought in some pretty heavy power from the air and from the ground, which more or less stalled that advance, even though it was going nowhere anyway. And to some extent, I think that the Emiratis perhaps uh, were convinced that you know other powers like the French and the United States would, would be there for them. The French position has has gone from being strong supporter of Haftar to kind of pretending he doesn't exist. And the US position under the Trump administration, at least, changed every three months. So the Emiratis, in in a weird way, were almost left alone to fight that battle against Turkey, which is a, a much more effective military power and a NATO power, uh, and and it was only going in one direction. The Emiratis got themselves involved in all sorts of questions, I think, that were probably a bit too big for them. Uh, Nevertheless, I think we should qualify this. People often talk about how strong the relationship between Qatar and, and Turkey is. It is strong, and it's grown ever stronger since this dispute began. But we forget that the biggest bilateral trade partner in the Gulf for Turkey is the UAE. And it has remained the UAE through all of this. Let us look a little bit at the economic side here. The Turkish lira has been highly unstable, partly because of Erdogan's rather bizarre economic strategy. They need money. I think that's fair to say. Uh, And I think it's also fair to say that the Turks, under the radar, have escaped a lot of criticism for their handling of the coronavirus, which has not been good, by the way. In contrast to some of the Gulf countries, the Turks have not done a good job with the coronavirus and it has hammered their economy on top of all the other political issues that they have with the United States, the Europeans, um, which have weakened the lira significantly. Tiny little Qatar is not enough to bail out an economy the size of Turkey. They have gone back to first principles and to look at countries in the region that they are... Uh, tied with historically and economically, which are the UAE, Saudi Arabia, and Israel, all of which Erdogan has picked fights with. And you now see very reconciliatory rhetoric, which I think is very, very interesting from all sides, right? You know, the UAE is hurting financially. Saudi is hurting financially. Qatar sort of is, but it's it's a little bubble economy there on the coast. And I think that actually that has had a major role, in, well, you call it papering over the cracks. I mean, I agree, there are huge cracks, but I think also money does talk.
0: And let me uh, let me ask you about Egypt and all this, because the uh, the Egyptians were exoriating Qatar for three and a half years, and all of a sudden, Qatar's best buddies again. The Egyptians are going to go to Doha, cap in hand, and say, hey, can you help us out?
1: Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? Um So I guess at this juncture, it's probably worth saying that um, the Qataris were actually sending diplomatic delegations to Egypt for the last two to three years. Nobody talked about it, but I actually knew Qatari diplomats that were visiting Egypt fairly regularly. And yes, they had a bit of issues getting their their visas sorted out and it was taking longer than normal for reasons we know well. But there were relations apparently, and I thought that was very interesting. And it seemed to me that, you know, as as the relationship between the UAE Saudi and Egypt began to be a little bit tense, and CC, you know, was caught more than twice. on on camera or recorded basically saying that you know the Gulf Arabs have money like rice and that we need them for the money and all this sort of stuff the Emiratis and the Saudis didn't take too kindly to that um well frankly I don't think the Qataris mind too much and uh what's happened of course is that the moment (laughs) that um this reconciliation between the quartet and was announced literally a day later a one billion dollar hotel was opened in Cairo owned by the Qataris, which means that they were talking extensively about this for some time. You don't just open a hotel worth a billion dollars in in 24 hours, right? So um, I think it's very clear that the divisions which existed back in 2012, 2013, uh, where um, the Egyptians handed back $8 billion, $8 billion, and they could have done with that $8 billion, right? from the central bank to the Qataris as a basically as a sort of, uh, you know, get out of here and close the door. Well, things have been a little bit more difficult. You know, oil prices have been low almost consistently since 2014. The Gulf Arabs are not in the position that they were in the mid-naughties where they had a lot of money to spend and they could prop up countries ad infinitum. Qataris are a little bit different because of their LNG supplies, and I think that actually the Egyptians are just having to be pragmatic. You know, unemployment is rising in Egypt. That is a domestic security concern for them. And they need access to capital. It's not going to come from Europe. So it's got to come from other somewhere else. And, and I think that the Qataris have understood, and we, we talked about this in my last uh, podcast with you, that the Qataris weaponize the one thing that they have in abundance, and that's money. And let's be honest, you know, there's a, very frequently in international relations a price for everything, and and the Qataris can afford to pay that price, whether that's 200 million euros for Neymar, for Paris Saint-Germain, or whether it's billions of dollars of investment into an economy that needs it. Uh, And I think that's been a very, very effective tool for them.
0: Well, that's interesting. Uh, An outbreak of pragmatism after three and a half years of a feud that all of us on the outside looked at and said, this is really, really silly I'm wondering, too, that um, do you think that MBS is showing signs of mature leadership? I mean, he is moving away from the orbit of Mohammed bin Zayed. You talk, touched on this a little earlier, that the Saudis said, look, we are going to do this, whether you like it or not. What do you think? A, a more mature MBS emerging?
1: I would say so. And I, I've been giving this a little bit of thought recently because I've noticed ways in which MBS has changed his tone changed the way that he leads on issues, uh, changed the way in which the Saudi state reacts to big foreign policy questions. If you cast your mind back a couple of years, MBS was at the forefront of every policy initiative uh, which the kingdom was undertaking. He was frequently talking about it in the media, very, very active, and the focal point of everything. Uh, Then obviously came the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, and things changed. They have switched tactics, and I think he has switched an approach. It's very clear that, that Faisal bin Farhan, has been, who's the foreign minister, has been empowered to talk extensively on behalf of the kingdom. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I'll be straight up here. Faisal has been a friend of mine for many years before I ever thought he would be foreign minister. He's an extremely intelligent and capable man, a very good policy analyst, and, and, and that has produced some very good quality sort of thinking in public uh, they have also turned to some of their old warriors, uh, Prince Turkey al-Faisal and uh, Prince Bandar bin Sultan, and uh, a couple of their uh, well-known academics as well to talk in the public sphere about policy. The interesting result of that is that you now see what we didn't see two years ago, but we kind of knew, which is that there is a difference of opinions in Saudi Arabia about big policy questions. Uh, yes, there are government lines, but there are also debates about what Saudi Arabia should be doing how it should be doing it where it should be engaging with what resources should it be engaging the other thing i think that's been really important is that they've started to admit that some of their policies were incorrect i wouldn't necessarily say wrong but they were they were you know needed adjustment i think is probably the the fair thing to say and that is a, a small change that i've noticed in saudi arabia in the last 2 years which has been very constructive. Uh, there are other issues we can talk about with you know, their human rights records, which frankly need need work. But on the policy side, I have seen some improvements. I, I don't know MBS personally. I don't know if he's had a kind of gestalt switch in his mind. But what I do know is that there are people around MBS who have told him that things needed to change. And that was understood by many people in the royal court. and And, and I think that's the differences that we're seeing today. Uh, on a personal level, I've been very encouraged to see MBS talking more about um, sustainable green technology, uh, which is something we we touched on in my my last podcast. And I think that shows that the Saudis are beginning to realise where the currents of world politics are moving, and they're adjusting along with that. So uh, in short answer to your question, I think there is a more mature approach. I think there there is a recognition that they didn't get everything right. And there is a recognition that they need to be providing answers rather than problems.
0: And perhaps MBS won't be uh, played as as readily and easily as he has in the past by by MBZ. But l- let me ask you this now, uh, because in the Al Ula declaration, the point was security. That was the point, and with with Iran in mind. And and I'm just wondering, is the Gulf a safer place with this feud set aside? And and is the GCC? put back together again or is it Humpty Dumpty and uh, forever to be uh, to be broken up
1: Um, it's Humpty Dumpty but glued Uh, I'm it's a bit like a broken mirror Bill in that you can put it back together yes and it can be a very effective mirror but there's still a crack in the middle of it and doesn't matter how well you repair it that crack's going to be there to keep that analogy going, and I, and I will end that in, in a few seconds, is that at least it's functioning as a mirror again, right? It's a it's a faulty one, but it functions. Now, there are larger questions here about what you think the GCC is. What is it there for? What is it supposed to do? Is it supposed to be a sort of union of countries that all see things the same way, that speak in, in the same language about the same threats? That is, I think... If you cast your mind back to 2012 when the Saudis were talking about a Gulf Union, that is what they had hoped. And if I'm honest, the only country which subscribed to that was Bahrain, uh, which effectively sold its sovereignty down the line in return for protection from the Saudis. I'll be straight up with you. The Emiratis, the Omanis, the Qataris and the Kuwaitis are not interested in that model. They're not interested in taking their marching orders from Saudi Arabia. They're not interested in taking their marching orders from each other. They value sovereignty. Uh, they are not looking for a European Union style of integration. And if they were, I think you would probably see the same problems that we've had with, you know, the UK and Brexit and countries not feeling that it was for them. I think, look, what one of the biggest problems with the GCC, and, and this is a very obvious point, but it needs to be said, is that one country is just so much bigger than the others that there's always going to be a lopsided nature to it. There's always going to be a slight resentment and fear of what Saudi wants to do. If there was a Gulf Union, it would be a Saudi-led union. There's just no way around this. And I don't think that these small countries, you know, through quirks of history, uh, are particularly interested in in that. So the GCC can be a loose confederation, if you like, of of like-minded, similarly built states with similar economies, similar cultural values, language, uh, attitude to the world. But I don't think that the GCC that we see today is going to be some kind of, you know, unique policy forum that speaks in one mind on all the issues. Sure, they can talk about Iran and and they can talk about, I don't know, political Islam or instability or non-interference. These are all kind of big tag phrases that don't require a lot of work. To my mind, when you talk about security in the Gulf, which is what your first question was, it's still about America. You know, the Americans are still by far and away the most powerful country in the room here. And with the Biden administration re-engaging on the JCPOA with Iran, Obama 3 coming in, the question is whether there has been a learning process. And I think there has been amongst Biden administration officials that Yes, they should engage with Iran. Yes, the nuclear deal is a problem, and, and we are all aware of the Iranians messing around with their uh, high enriched uranium levels again, which is extre- extremely worrying. By the way, I, it almost feels like Groundhog Day, like we've we've teleported back to twenty ten. But the issue now is regional security, Iran's intervention in Yemen, its intervention with the Iraqi Hezbe and obviously with Hezbollah in Lebanon. Um, I very quickly segue because it's been it's been interesting that. You know, Iran has incredibly strong leverage in Lebanon, Syria, and Iraq. All three countries are broke. There's no money. The coronavirus has shattered them. Lebanon has just gone into a new lockdown. Syria's casualty numbers are, are severe, by the way. And of course, you know, Iraq, we know well, is is heading towards basically insolvency, and, and it's devalued it's, its currency, and it's in all sorts of problems. How much influence does Iran really have? It has influence in broken states. So the Biden administration is going to have to look at that and wonder whether state building in these weakened states is in its interest, or whether just to say, well, you know what, Iran has militias in these countries, but they're not exactly major players. So the Gulf is secure. I suspect that might be where they look. Uh, the big question is then going to be Yemen and how they deal with Yemen, which is a never-ending headache, and I don't know how they'll solve that.
0: And and even more complicated by the Pompeo decision to declare uh, the the Houthi terrorist organization and and just another point that that, that you mentioned uh, just to draw it out is that one of the decisions that's been made is that this time around with JCPOA2 that the Biden administration and Blinken they're going to talk to the Gulf states this time they're not going to ignore them which which I think was Obama's one of Obama's mistakes in in JCPOA1 Um, There are those that are saying that, you know, in all of this, Qatar came out the big winner. If you look at those 13 demands, basically, had they accepted them, it was the end of them as a country. Well, those 13 demands simply were off the table. Uh, It was basically... You stop saying bad things about us we will stop saying bad things about you drop the suits that you that that you're threatening us with and and let's and let's move on uh, the the economy as you said it survived i think reasonably well and and also internationally Qatar gained kudos for the way it handled the dispute you know the only adults in the room kind of attitude so do you think that Qatar are the big winners is that a view you would subscribe to
1: yes and no i, I I think that, you know, Qatar's economy got smacked pretty hard in 2017. Their private sectors really struggled and, and could definitely do uh, with some Saudi and Emirati tourists. And I, I don't know how often you go to Doha, Bill, but there are buildings on the Corniche in Doha that have been unbuilt for years now because Emirati investors stopped putting money into them. 600-metre-tall skyscrapers. I mean, this is nearly 2,000-foot-tall skyscrapers that are just sitting there at 30 floors, empty, unbuilt, looking a bit of a mess. Doha could do with reintegrating with MR and Damak, the big Emirati um, logistics and, and construction firms. Absolutely, I think uh, Qatar DR could be doing with putting a bit of money back into uh, Emirati hotel chains. Uh, which are also seeing a bit of of a, a downturn. So, look, here's the thing. Let's talk first of all about where the real damage is, and that's amongst people. Every Qatari I have spoken to is bitter, sore, angry, accepts that their government has made this decision, doesn't like it, accepts it. And funnily enough, they don't buy the sunshine and rainbows argument being pushed by their media. Nobody I know in Qatar thinks that how the media has covered this reflects how they feel. And that ranges, by the way, from people in the royal family to people all the way down at the sort of lower levels of of Qatari social life. And and I I just think that that's going to take time. There are some long-running feuds now that, let's be honest, Bill, you and I followed this escalation for years. The stories, the rhetoric, the, the tweets... Golf social norms are quite strict and when those norms are broken there are consequences and social norms were broken amongst people who should have known better they said things and did things and by the way I'm on all sides here because you know I mean twitter well i think donald trump's shown that twitter is not the best place to be venting your uh, your opinions on things but but this is what happened in the golf and um that emotionally and intellectually is difficult for people on both sides to process because when you break those norms it becomes a very very difficult thing to forgive and um i think as a result of that i'm afraid to say i think that everybody lost out now if you want to talk about politics i think there was only ever going to be one winner and i've said this in an article i wrote uh, last week that the moment this went into week two And Qatar decided that it was going to stand firm. The Western powers basically stood neutral and then Turkey and Iran came to Qatar's aid. Qatar was always going to win this. Uh, Why were they going to win this? One, they could diversify their supply chains. Uh, Two, they could export their LNG to market through Iranian waters. That meant they were always going to have money no matter what this blockade did. The Qataris were always going to be able to basically balance their budget, which meant that they could ride this out basically forever. The Saudis and the Emiratis thought that they could count on Trump. And then they realized that they couldn't. And they learned a lesson. And I think that once that happened, uh, this was always going to go Qatar's way. And you alluded to this, the various court cases the Emiratis and the Saudis lost their court cases, and the Qataris looked like they were going to win theirs. So it was probably better to uh, to end this dispute now before it got worse. Hmm.
0: Yeah, so we shouldn't um, assume that the hatchet is well and truly buried. Um, and I guess I'll mix my metaphors. Um, we should expect uh, a little bit of turbulence ahead.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I I don't think the hatchet has been fully buried. But for reasons of expediency, these countries will work together. And and here's the thing, Bill. Let's be honest, they're not democracies. It doesn't really matter what their people think about their foreign policies, right? On Israel, they've shown that they can normalise with Israel and there not be too much of a backlash, even though people are unhappy about it. Uh, Saudi Arabia is going to take a bit more time, obviously, because it's a it's a much more complicated question. I agree that there is going to be some problems ahead. There are going to be... Very many issues that will take years to solve, but this will work because it has to, and because there is no mechanism for undoing it at this point. That there's no there's no one out there that would support, um, this all falling apart again.
0: I suppose the only ones that might would be the Iranians because they were the only ones who actually got something out of that feud in that it uh, divided the Gulf uh, against itself. Mike, you've given us lots to think about. Thanks very much.
1: Thank you so much.
0: You've been listening to the Arab Digest podcast. My guest today was Michael Stevens, a senior fellow at the Foreign Policy Research Institute. We welcome your comments. If you're not already a member and you want to join the club, you can find out how by going to arabdigest.org. If you're a student, we have a new rate of £10 a month or £100 per year. And for academics and retirees, we're now offering a rate that amounts to a 70% discount check it out on ArabDigest.org, and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest, essential reading from independent sources.